Hello, I'm Peter Ayers. Welcome to the Stages podcast. This is part two of my conversation with Gail Edwards, a companion episode in which we continue a conversation with our preeminent storyteller and acclaimed director. In part one, she shared with us her early life in Adelaide and an interrupted childhood, her forays into theatre making with her company Energy Connection, time at NIDA, her early career as a director working with state theatre companies and being exposed to a breadth of repertoire, and the arrival of the musical Les Miserables in Australia. In part two, we learn about her extensive international career and the challenges presented to an artist as they navigate a precarious industry. Gail Edwards is frank, astute, intuitive, and possesses an infectious sense of humour. It is evident that she adores her role as a storyteller and is most reverential in her respect for the text to which she gives life. The incredible joy she experiences in being in a rehearsal room is palpable. Hers is a fascinating story, and it was a privilege to spend time with Gail as she shared insight, assessment, and anecdotes of a celebrated and trailblazing career. We can just start whenever. Are you going to ask me how my week's been? (laughs) Back for part two with Gail Edwards. How has your week been? Because it's been a week since we said hello. My week's been terrific, thank you. I've had a phone call from the old Fitz. Um, Oh, okay. Andrew Henry runs the old Fitz. They do some great work there. Some of the best work I've seen is there. I've loved it. I love their work. And it's that intimacy of space. Yeah, and it's terrific. And I've almost directed there a couple of times, but it hasn't worked out. But anyway... He rang me to say that the director who was directing Jonathan Biggins in Crap's last tape can't do it, and they'd asked Jonathan Biggins who he'd like to, to direct it, and Jonathan had suggested me. So I went to a meeting, and within 24 hours I'd said yes. I'd got Brian Thompson on board as the designer. I'd had a meeting with Jonathan Biggins. We'd gone and looked at the theatre. We decided on a concept, and I'm starting on Monday. That's brilliant. It's, we've got three weeks rehearsal and we open um, in November probably before this ever goes to air. But, but what's thrilling to me is I directed Jonathan Biggins in a David Williamson play 25, 30 years ago. We haven't worked together since. It was instantaneous. We, you know, we sat down and had a cup of coffee and it was like it was yesterday. And it's such an interesting play by Samuel Beckett, part of the absurdist movement written around 1956 and the sort of bleak black comedy of of these pieces i've wanted to get my fingers into this pie for a very long time absurdism um ionesco even dario fo i've never done so i'm thrilled to bits to be doing it and i'm thrilled to bits to be doing it with jonathan who will be fabulous but to be working in a little tiny theater that seats 60 people, or whatever it seats, in that small, intimate space. It's like redefining myself instead of, because people say, oh, well, you wouldn't do that. You'd never do that. You always do big things. And you think, well, just because I always do big things doesn't mean I, I don't love small things. You know, I came from somewhere. Um, so I'm thrilled to be, dare I say it, returning to my roots. Because you've had an extensive career overseas working on some of the grandest opera houses and stages and theatres in the world. How long were you overseas? I was away for about 20 years. I did commute and in that time I did come back to Australia and do things. But I lived in London. I bought a flat in London. 
I went because I was offered St. Joan um, on the West End, George Bernard Shaw, starring um, Imogen Stubbs, who was married to Trevor Nunn at the time and was a friend of mine, Trevor. So was this not long after Les Mis finished? Oh, it was a long time after Les Mis finished. When we we did Les Mis, I remember Trevor saying to me, you really must come and work in England. You must come to England. And I sort of quietly rolled my eyes and thought, that's the sort of thing that great, you know, great godlike men say to younger directors, you must come to England. But they don't really mean it. But in fact, 10 years later, he did mean it. And I went there and directed that. And Adrian Noble at the RSC rang me when I was here in Sydney and asked me if I wanted to come and direct, wait for it, The Taming of the Shrew. Because, of course, wouldn't it be a good idea to get a female director doing it, The Taming of the Shrew? And you think, why? I mean, that is such a poison chalice. Mm. Because if you do the play as it's written, you're going to be shot at. And if you twist and change the play, you're probably going to be shot at anyway by a different group of people. And it was indeed a poison chalice. But I did go to the RSC and do The Taming of the Shrew. And fortunately, that was the beginning of a long relationship with them. And I returned three times to direct at the, at the RSC. Because you directed on the main stage. First woman to direct on the main stage. I was. Yeah. I was the first woman, I think, in history to work on the main stage. There'd been women running uh, the small, the little tin shed that used to be called The Other Place that did some remarkable work, and also the Swan Theatre, and women directed there. But I think I was the first woman to direct on the great big main stage in the main theatre at the RSC, and I'm sure there have been others since, but I was, I think, the first. Was it daunting to enter the RSC in Stratford-on-Avon, home of Shakespeare, where you're directing Shakespearean plays. Yes. Is that daunting or is that liberating? Well, I was so excited. I mean, <laughs> I walked in to... I mean, I was in one of the little white cottages that lined the street looking at the theatre and I was, you know, where, fame, where you know, Peggy Ashcroft had stayed, where Ian McKellen had stayed, where whole rows of these little cottages and I had one. And I walked across the road to the stage door at the RSC and I would walk through that hallowed door every day of my life to go to rehearsals and I just thought wow I can die now this is just perfection this is just amazing because of course like many of us I put the rucksack on my back at the age of 19 and gone and watched every show at the Royal Shakespeare Company on five pound tickets and here I was directing there on the main stage it's it's a dream come true um so I loved it but at the first rehearsal of um, the second play I did there, Don Carlos, by Schiller, the leading actor of the company, who shall remain nameless, said to me on the first day when we sat down and I talked about the play and how we were going to do it, he said, oh, they do Shakespeare in Australia, do they? Dear. And there was a deadly silence. And, you know, there's 30 people in the room and you're sitting there. And I I said, yes, we do do Shakespeare. It's hard to avoid the kangaroos hopping down the streets, but we do do, we do manage to fit it in. 
and there was a sort of chortle around the room. And um, off we went for weeks of rehearsal with a grand English actor, male, who had probably never been directed by a female at the time. And when we finished, he said to me on the opening night, I want to play King Lear before I die, and I want you to direct it. So we had gone from complete contempt and dismissal of the colonial who rolled up at the RSC to direct Shakespeare, and a woman to boot, to would I direct his King Lear. So I had won him over, and he had loved the rehearsal process, and we became the best of friends. And that story has repeated itself many times over and over again in my career where someone has started from a position of scepticism and of course later in my career actually being told oh she's dreadful she's difficult and demanding you're in for hell you know being warned about how terrible it would be to be in a rehearsal room with me and then going on a journey where at the end they've become the dearest of friends and the most adoring of colleagues and and felt that they'd gone on a great journey. So this, this little pattern has kind of repeated itself a lot in my life. I think women, especially young women, in when I was younger, I mean, it was the opposite of being endowed with any intelligence or ability or experience. I mean, I, I was a, I was a 30-year-old young woman with red lipstick and I had an Australian accent and I came from the Antipodes. What could I possibly offer? So it's remarkable that I then went on to have a 17, 18-year career in London and loved every bit of it. (laughs) So why did you come back to Australia? Well, I I had directed many musicals for Andrew Lloyd Webber. I directed four times at the Royal Shakespeare Company. I had directed classics on the West End. I had not stopped working. And I guess you're living out of a suitcase too. I was living out of a suitcase, although I did buy an apartment in London, which I still have, right in the West End, because I had to walk, virtually walk to work every day. And that sounds very glamorous. You know, I've got an apartment in the West End and I'm walking to work. But the truth is it's midnight and you're walking home alone Mm. and you are exhausted. And you're going back to your your apartment by yourself. That's the that's the reality. That's the difference between yeah. the myth and the reality. But I did have a wonderful two decades there, and I was doing five or six shows a year, and I was you know cavorting in Andrew Lloyd Webber land. We did several musicals together. They travelled around Europe. We did musicals on the on the West End and Broadway. So I had this remarkably strange life, um, plus uh, working at the Royal Shakespeare Company. And um, one day I was, <laughs> I was, by way of anecdote, I was at the Almeida Theatre, which is a tiny little theatre in London, and I was seeing a play and I, I recognised in the bar Tom Stoppard. And I was about to direct... Tom Stoppard's Arcadia in Australia at the Sydney Theatre Company. And being such a fan and thinking I was an absolute nobody, I went up and said, excuse me, hello, Um, my name's Gail Edwards and I'm directing your play in Australia next year. And Tom Stoppard turned to me and said, Gail Edwards, 
Oh my God, it's so wonderful to meet you. I've heard all about you. So we did this strange, unexpected mutual admiration society. We went and sat down in the corner and had a drink. And he said, I'll come out and see your production. And I thought, really? And he wrote his phone number on the back of a white paper napkin and said, give me your number, which I wrote on the back of a white napkin. And we handed it to each other. And he said, I'm such a fan of your work. I've seen so much work in the West End. Andrew Lloyd Webber speaks very highly of you and he knew Andrew very well. I'll come and see it. So when I came home, I mentioned to the Sydney Theatre Company, I think Tom's coming Tom now, not Tom Stoppard, please note. We're on first name yes. terms. Yes. Tom's going to come for opening night. And they said, oh, don't be ridiculous. If Tom Stoppard was coming to the opening night, we would know. And he was in LA writing... Shakespeare in Love. Shakespeare in Love, I think. Mm. And also um, a movie script for something else. Anyway, he was would have been working on Shakespeare in Love. And... One day, in near Tech Week, I got this phone call at home with a voice saying, hello, it's Tom here. Um, now I'm finishing in LA and I'm heading to you for your opening night. Well, you could have blown me over with a feather. So I immediately the next day said, he's coming, he's coming. Tom Stoppard is coming. I said, don't be silly, we've heard nothing. He's not coming. Well, of course, the next day he walked into rehearsal, unannounced found his way to the Sydney Theatre Company, put himself up somewhere, and turned up. It was the most magical moment. And, of course, as soon as people realised Tom Stoppard was in the building, publicists came running and he was, you know, taken away to the press. But I sat next to him in the drama theatre on opening night. And... um, his his hands were holding the sides of the seat. He was with us in the last week of rehearsal and the tech. And he would take me out to dinner at night and talk to me about the show. And He sat there and his knuckles were white. Now, this was the fourth production of Arcadia in the world. And he would squeeze the side of the chair at every joke and listen, whether it had worked or not, whether it had landed, whether it got the right applause, whether we'd blown the applause because... The, the laughter because we got too much laughter on the line before and we didn't build to the next line. I mean, a master craftsman, master craftsman. And I sat next to him on the opening night and it was one of the great nights of my life because he was just as scared as I was. Yeah, like any great artist. Yes. Something is never completely yes. satisfyingly finished. And Tom is Mr. Charm and Mr. Smooth and Mr. You know, Mr. Global Entity. Mm. And there he was with white knuckles holding onto the sides of the chair caring so much about his own work and wanting it to work so badly and then being so relieved and thrilled afterwards. It was such a wonderful lesson, so inspiring. And it pays to go up and say hello to someone at a bar. Well, you recognise? Thinking that I was a girly fan. You do, you, know. do you get starstruck normally? Because you have worked with some incredible actors. and uh, I don't get starstruck. I've had, I have had, you know dinners with and been at dinners with very, very famous people, and I've directed a few of them. But um, Tom Tom Stoppard is kind of, was a god to me, and um, still is. <laughs> so were you welcome back to Australia as the conquering hero, that extensive CV overseas? 
Um, no, I can't say that happened. Uh, I, I don't think my career really ever recovered from being away for 20 years. I was sort of the girl, the girl most likely to succeed. You know, I was the child prodigy. Of, I'd gone to South Australia with John Gaydon. I'd gone to the Melbourne Theatre Company. I'd done commercial musicals with Cameron Mackintosh. So I was a notable entity. And then I went away. And then 20 years when I came back, it was it was quite different. I wouldn't say I was given a ticker tape welcome. And I don't think my career or position in Australia ever really recovered from that absence. And I'm, you know, I'm not sure why. You've obviously gone away for that professional development to extend yourself mm. as an artist. Mm. And I returned a lot. Yeah. I mean... Almost every year I did something in Australia while I was away, So because I was constantly on aeroplanes. I mean, we used to fly from London to New York on the Concorde, Andrew and I, because we'd have a meeting, and then I'd have to go back and direct. I mean, I lived a, an extraordinary lifestyle. I was always on planes, and I don't say that, again, I do not say that as a glamorous thing. It sounds glamorous, it's not. <laughs> None of this is glamorous. It's hard work. But I loved it. I loved every minute of it. Um, so I was commuting back to Australia and directing a play and then going back to London. Um, but when I came back, it's a strange phenomenon that works here. There's a sort of a... Is it generational? Is there a whole new bunch of people in various positions who, mm. you know, dare I say, don't know your work? Though they I guess so. I guess that's part of it. Um, after I came back, it very quickly became established that I was, you know, difficult and demanding. And, um, oh, God, don't don't get her. She's so, you know... Which is the sort of the up-yourself up thing. You know, oh, she's come back, she's so up-herself. Sure, poppy. Um, I guess um, I certainly am difficult and demanding about the work. Um, I'm passionate about the work. But I, I wouldn't say that I was ever humiliating or um, mean-spirited or um, difficult for the sake of throwing a tantrum or something like that. I'd, I'd fight over an issue to do with the set or cuts or casting that person or often defending that person from producers who wanted to fire them. Um, but... Uh, you know, it's this is a country where it's a this is a village and gossip travels quickly and you know, moss grows very quickly on that stone and all of a sudden you hear from people who've never worked with you. Never worked with you, never been in a restaurant with you, that you're, you know, terrible in all sorts of ways. And it would it would really depress me. It would get to me, you know, because I'd want to say Names, addresses, who, where, when, what did I say, what... So you can defend yourself. And there's no defence because it's behavioural, it's not about the, the standard of the work. Um, and so if you can't attack on the standard of the work, you have to attack on something else. And uh, so I would say that now I regret coming back. Um, I've been back for two decades and I would say I haven't really ever been able to get back on the path, the, the upward trajectory that I was on 
when I left the country and went to London and lived that remarkable 17 years. And then suddenly it was all much more difficult. Well, I hope I'm not chartering uncomfortable waters, but I think we need to do warts and all. Oh, yeah, warts and all. The position as, as head of training institutions and state theatre companies has come up from time to time in the country. And always your name is one that comes to the fore as a potential and highly qualified candidate. Now, I don't know if you've ever thrown your hat in the ring for any of those jobs, but are they roles that you would like to have done? I'm, I'm possibly oh, no, talking it's, about it's, it's a well, of NIDA or yeah, yeah, state it's, theatre companies. It's a well-known fact that I've applied for NIDA twice to run NIDA. Um, and I think probably... A, all the jobs in Australia, I think the one I probably was the best candidate for was the John Clark position at NIDA. But once the board made the decision to amalgamate the Elizabeth Butcher general manager with the artistic director, John Clark, and to crush those together and call that person the CEO, then suddenly they had to be an administrative wonder person and have some artistic ability as well. And without mentioning names, Mm. we know that people have been appointed to that job who have been biased very much in one direction or the other. And if you're running NIDA with no background in the theatre and no background in the Australian theatre, but perhaps a lot of um, administrative ability, but you don't really know anything about Shakespeare, then I say that's a crime. Mm. But that did happen, and it happened for many years. Mm. Um, and You wouldn't run, let someone run a hospital if they didn't know about no. coronary <laughs> exactly. operations. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I think boards make decisions, um, and they're not always well-informed. Um, I did apply for NIDA. I've, I've applied for state theatre companies many times. Um, I think now, at this point in my life, with the sort of the ageism that operates, I'm probably now too old. But I, you know, I've been applying for things for about ten or fifteen years, and um, <laughs> I applied to run the Melbourne Theatre Company a few years ago when the wonderful Brett got the job and Brett is fabulous and Brett I Shee, Brett yeah. Shee and and he's he's entrepreneurial he's not a director so they were clearly looking for an entrepreneurial person but I threw my hat in the ring because I've been the associate director of the Melbourne Theatre Company and I've done lots of things in Melbourne and I really wanted to run a company and I got this letter from the I got an email from the secretary of the board saying thank you for your application and your immense diatribe on your vision for the for the for the future of the company but but do you have any filmic records of your work because people on the board are not familiar with your work film records of stage production yes of my stage production yes and (laughs) i had to sort of email back and say well that's strange because i was associate director of the company for several years and and i've toured many productions to uh to melbourne and worked all over the world and many genres and blah, 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 and having the vanity to think that I would be shortlisted for an interview. And I got a, a, an email back saying, oh, well, if you're unable to provide filmic evidence of your work for the board to see your work, could you please extend your five-page vision of the company or something? 
And I just wrote back and said, I think you're looking for someone else. I mean... How do you respond to that? How do you respond mm. to, we don't really know who you are? And he, but, how, but, how long did you direct there? How many productions through, through, did you oh, do see? Nine productions there. But also operas, all my operas went to Melbourne, The Boy From Oz went to Melbourne, The Rocky Horror Show went to Melbourne. I mean, I had so many shows on in Melbourne over 20 years. The board are unfamiliar with your work. Do you have any filmic records of yours? And I said, you wouldn't want to see a filmic record because in those days they were locked off archival videos at the end of the theatre. Mm. They weren't like they weren't done professionally like they are at the National Theatre of Great Britain now, where they're like films. These were just awful tied off videos in wide shot where the performers would be like ants walking around. You know, I mean, I said, I'm quite sure the board aren't going to want to watch those. But I found that astonishing. Mm. So that's kind of what happens. So it implies the board have no theatre knowledge whatsoever. um, Well, I don't know what it implies. It's just... um, It was very surprising to me that I wouldn't, with my CV, with my experience, with my connection to the Melbourne Theatre Company, blah, 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 that I wouldn't be almost automatically shortlisted for an interview. Mm. But it could have been that often with these jobs, there are deals done behind closed doors. I don't know if that's true, but I was very surprised to not be shortlisted to not even get a chance to turn up. So there's been a lot of that that's gone on in the last decade and a half that's been hard to live with and has isolated me quite a bit from the business, a business in which I had immersed myself so fully for so many years at the expense of real life and perhaps to the detriment of real life. You know, I never got married and I never had kids. And here I am without grandchildren and finding myself jealous of the lady down the street who looks after the six-year-old three days a week. And I think, oh, I get it. That's why people get married and have kids, so they can have grandchildren. (laughs) And they give a point to their old age. I get it. But I always believed I'd be working madly into my 70s, 80s. And I'm only in the first half of my 60s still. Mm. Um... So it's 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 been difficult to live with. What's your rehearsal room like? Um, I think rehearsal rooms have to be safe places for actors. Um, I think rehearsal rooms are laboratories where you test theories. So I come, I do a lot of research before I do a play or an opera or a musical. I come very prepared. I come with bags full of research and ideas. I've worked with a designer for a long time and I've got a set design and a way of doing it in a concept. But once I'm in the room, I'm open. I have a strong idea how things, how a scene's going to feel to an audience, what it's got to say to an audience. But I haven't solved, you take six steps over there and sit in the chair and you pour yourself a drink on that line, and then you do this. None of that's solved. And I love working with actors to investigate text, and I love working with actors. I love the detective work of mining a text. And 
the and working off their ideas and their personalities you can go in with as many ideas as you like when you're standing in front of real human beings who are really going to play those characters they have a 50% investment in that as you do whatever you've thought of at home is going to be completely changed by them and i love that stimulation and i've had the pleasure of working with great actors who who are so stimulating to have a, a collaboration with on the floor a partnership with that's that's the best when when they finish your sentences and you finish their sentences and i've had those experiences that is the best time in a rehearsal room and then there are other actors who want to be helped they don't have any ideas they just want you to tell them what to do and there are other uh, actors who are frightened nervous it's a very scary thing to be an actor and who are wanting you to open the flower wanting you to prise open the can and see what falls out of it and um so you have to be a bit of a psychiatrist in terms of or a psychologist really in terms of dealing with different personalities you can speak to one actor in one way and another actor in another way but i think it's very important that the room is open that failure is allowed and that includes failure for me because i have to be able to say i'm sorry i don't know i don't know the answer to that and i've said that but let's find an answer together um i often have answers sometimes i've got several possibilities but i don't know which one's going to work um i think um i think kind of i'm i'm a pretty good teacher when i'm directing i certainly get that feedback from actors um and i only really i think i said this before i only feel whole when i'm in a rehearsal room with the door shut a group of actors in a fabulous script that's when i feel total complete i don't really need tech week or the glamour of the or the struggle for the lights and the costumes and the wigs and the hemlines and the tap shoes and the, i don't really i can i thrive on in all of that but that's not the best bit because that's the decorative bit at the end the best bit is being in the room mining the story for what it's going to say to an audience today and bringing to life the personalities of all those actors to inform the characters what's your process directing original works i mean how do you work with the playwright um you know original musicals like boy from oz where you work with nick enright and then you worked on some of those lloyd webber shows where you've been yep. credited <clears throat> as a book writer as well yeah and i've worked on lots of new works yeah um Cloud Street the Opera yes. most recently um I worked for 5 years with George Palmer on Cloud Street in fact at this very table in this very room <laughs> and um this is the same table that the boy from Oz was created on with Max Lambert and Nick Enright and we cut it all up into little cards and laid it all out over the table every night after rehearsals and said that song's in the wrong place i'm not sure that's working there we've got a great first act second act's not working what are we going to do i mean it was it's it's fully hands on if you are developing a new work you are a collaborator with the writers and you are smack bang up against the creative cauldron that's creating the work um and that's a that's a different process to being given a script 
you know, I'm about to direct Crap's last tape. Well, it's Samuel Beckett's script and I'm not going to change it. And he's got a lot of stage directions. You know, he gets the banana out of the drawer. He tells you that. He tells you exactly what he does. That's not the same as creating something that may take you years. I mean, with Cloud Street, George and I started alone. We weren't commissioned to write it. We, we, he came to me for help. I helped him for two years. We did a workshop we funded ourselves. And then the South Australian Theatre Com- um, Opera Company picked it up. And they then developed it over another two workshops. And finally it went on and was a huge success in, in South Australia um, for a minute. You know, everything's for a minute in this country. But, but it was a, a, a wonderful journey. But I would have to say that I was hand in hand, side by side with George Palmer for five years. And by the time I came to direct it, I knew every note and every word. Um, so it, it, in a way, it's easier to direct because you've, you, you've been so much a part of its creation. Ditto The Boy From Oz, um, which was very hands-on. Again, it was a five-year process. Five years is a lot of your life to commit to something. Huge amount. Hmm. And, and you have to really believe in it. And you have to love your collaborators and want to want to bounce ideas backwards and forwards and not be insulting to each other and you've got to find ways to say no I think that's the worst idea in the world without upsetting them and um, and I've had very successful collaborations I mean the one with George Palmer was very successful I have a wonderful working relationship with the the great Max Lambert Um, I had a great working relationship with the late and great Nick Enright Um, and I do, I've, I've worked very closely with David Williamson. Um, I do love the process of creation. What about when you get a gig? What's the first thing you do? I mean, you said you, you, you fully prepare yourself with research, but... Um, the, well, that's the that's fir- crap's last well, tape. Well, You've been offered it. What, yeah. do you, what do you do now? Well, my first response when I'm ever offered offered a job is um, a strange cocktail of excitement and sheer terror. Mm-hmm. And I've never overcome the terror. Um, I think, oh my God, how, how will I do this? This is the, the one. So I have to find courage, first of all, to open the script and read it. And then I go down the rabbit hole into the world of the play or the opera or the musical. And I read everything. I do a tremendous amount of research. Um, I watch videos. I have no problem about watching videos of past productions. And the worse the productions, the better. (laughs) Because if you see a production, if you see a video of a production that's wonderful, you think, oh, damn, that's so good. I can't ever do that. So it's often quite good to watch 15 versions of the opera going back to black and white versions, you know, when they on VHS tape, mm. and thinking, well, that's that's not very good because it challenges you to think, well, what would I do? What am I going to do? It's all very well to say that's not very good, but what's your take on it? Because at the end of the day, it has to be you. And then I put all the research aside, and then I go and visit the designer, and I sit with the designer and I talk endlessly about the piece and the story and what it's about and why it's relevant today and why it can be relevant today if it's 400 years old. I've just directed um, The Coronation of Popeye, 
um, for the Yarra Valley Festival. Now, that was written in the mid-1600s. How do you make what's going on in that opera? You, any, anyone can do Popeye. Any, it's gorgeous Baroque music and you just got to, they, they can stand there and sing it. But that's not how I'm going to do it. I did it in modern dress. And what is this ambitious woman's life about who transacts sexually and transacts through the currency of her female charms to win Nero over and to get that crown? And how many times does she really sing the word love in the opera? You know, I, I investigate those things. So ultimately, it's, it's my version of Popeye. And I hope when I die, my tombstone will say every production she ever did came from her mind, her spirit, her brain, her heart, her groin. She found a way to speak through it to an audience um, because that would be the greatest honour. What about classic theatre? Um, you've written adaptations for the stage, most recently Ghosts, Ibsen's Ghosts at Melbourne Theatre Company. I did. That's rare though. Yeah. So you haven't done that a lot? I haven't done that a lot. I mean, that's but very is that rare. an easy process? It would be a laborious process. It's a... Well, you see, I love... I mean, I love the process of, of translating because I had... 15 versions of of Ibsen, including the original Norwegian, and I was literally, plus 15 other versions, translations, and I was literally comparing line by line by line. And I I love detective work. I, I, think I, I think I was one of those kids that could sit for hours on my own and entertain myself. Um, and, of course, that was my generation. We're talking about the 50s and early 60s. But I, I can sit... You know, I did Romeo and Juliet for the show, um, one of the Shakespeare theatres in America, and we ha we were compelled to cut it for time. Cutting the play was the most informative process because I couldn't cut the play; I could only prune the play. So you have to ask yourself why every line is there. Why is that line there? Can the play? Will the play be affected if that line is taken out? Now, that's a brilliant question to ask. Mm. Um, and, of course, it, it, there are lines that can be taken out and the play is not damaged, and there are lines that can be taken out and the play is severely damaged. So I would spend weeks doing that and loving... I mean, I would sit right over there on the sofa with a pen and the play, and I would challenge myself to make decisions about every idea in every line. And that's how I cut it. And it was a very ju judicious and careful and loving pruning of the play. Not just, oh, well, we can, we can wipe off that scene. You know, nothing like that. Um, but I find anything... I mean, you know, I study literature at university and I'm a doctor of letters and I love literature. And anything to do with words fascinates me. Sentences... Words are the results of thoughts. So I have to investigate somebody's mind. You know, who's Monteverdi? What was he thinking when he wrote that? Why did he choose to set one of his first operas in one of the most bloody reigns in Roman history with the second worst Caesar ever who ever lived? Caligula being the worst and Nero probably being the second worst. 
Um, why does he, you know, so you have to enter through those words or through those notes of music, you're entering the brain of someone, a shaman, who has something to say to the tribe. So it's a wonderful, mysterious detective journey. And I really am stimulated and enlivened by going on those journeys. And that all happens months before I ever go into a rehearsal room. I mean, sometimes years before I go into a rehearsal room. The Australian musical, again, you've had your hand in there on quite a few. Uh, The success (laughs) of The Boy From Oz. Uh, And then there was Eureka, which by all accounts was a, a magnificent production, but it closed early. Do Australians have a problem with seeing our stories given a musical treatment? I think so. Possibly we're not interested in our own colonial past. Um, It was a good production, I I think, I believe, um, in retrospect. And I'm quite ruthless in in analysing my own work. I'm I'm, I'm not sentimental about my own work. So I I can say to you honestly, I think... I never cracked this or I never cracked that, but I thought I got that pretty well. Um, I thought Eureka was a really valiant attempt at something. Um, And it was interesting that it was really uh, not embraced. Now, one of the reasons was that it was torn to shreds by the critics. I mean, torn to shreds. And I thought rather unjustly, I mean, I would say that. Um, But it was just kind of, um, it was sort of annihilated. And that was it. It was a commercial product. It couldn't be sustained if it was not supported by the press. And it was gone, you know, buried alive. But I loved doing it. And um, I look back on it as something that I'm very proud of. Not an Australian musical, but a classic. Uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. The original debut of the show was shocking and blasphemous. Um, Its aesthetic was very much of its time. Mm. How did you make it relevant 25 years later? Well, uh... I was at Andrew's, Andrew Lloyd Webber's house for dinner. And I had done Aspects of Love in Australia and then taken it to London and it had succeeded. So Andrew had a great deal of faith in me, which was born out of nothing other than the fact that we'd We'd done Aspects of Love and made it work. Superstar was the next one. And Andrew invited me to dinner and then he took me into his study and he opened a big art book with a full glossy page of a painting by Holborn, Holbein, of Jesus dead on a slab. And it is a very confronting painting the body is white with shades of green it's emaciated it's brutally damaged it's not the beautiful pre-raphaelite version of jesus um he's on a cold concrete base plinth and he looks terrible he looks like a man who has just been crucified And Andrew showed it to me and he said, I want you to direct Jesus Christ Superstar, but I want you to direct it like this. And showed me the painting and said, this is what it's about. It's not the, you know, the 
fringe-sleeved jackets and the, the disco dancing and, and the, you know, we're, we're all doing LSD and we arrive in a bus and we do a production. That was wonderful in its time, wonderful. But he wanted a much harder-hitting piece. Well, of course, he'd come to the right girl. I mean, he'd seen the Jacobeans that I directed at um, the Royal Shakespeare Company. He'd seen the dark... I've done a lot of dark work. Um, I've done Titus Andronicus in Washington and Richard III and dark pieces. And what can we do a slight segue then too? With those dark pieces, Mm. your family trauma, which we spoke about in the first episode, (laughs) psychologically, how do you address the subject matters of those plays? Well, they feel very familiar to me. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm one of the... F- I was at the time when I directed both of the the John Webster plays, The White Devil and The Duchess of Malfi, and I directed both of them at the RSC. And I'm, I'm probably one of the few directors around who's done both of his plays. Love the Jacobeans, but of course in the Jacobeans people are killed brutally every five minutes. They're stabbed, they're poisoned. And I subsequently did The White Devil for the Olympic Festival in Sydney. And, um, you know, we garroted Hugo Weaving on stage, who was playing the evil prince, who'd been poisoned. And this poison had come out all over his skin. So poor Hugo was covered in Cocoa Pops and strawberry jam and blood off stage, but then still staggered on the stage alive and then had to be garroted with a rope on stage by these two henchmen. I mean, it was horrendous. Mm. And um, I find found I find all that very exciting. I, I, I sort of enjoy it. I don't flinch. You have the access point. <laughs> it doesn't seem unusual to me. So I've, I've always enjoyed... Um, enjoyed is the wrong word. I've always felt familiar with... going to the dark place and I remember walking through Central Park once with Nick the great Nick Enright and Nick who is you know wonderful who was a wonderful playwright and actor and director and man of the theatre and I remember Nick saying to me as we walked through Central Park Gail you are prepared to put your hand into the heart of darkness in a way that I am jealous of because I cannot put my hand into that place in my work. And I took that as an enormous compliment from mm. Nick Enright, um, another god who I had encountered in my journey of life. Um, but I know what he means. But then Nick came from a very privileged background and, you know, he, he knew my story and he said you have a very unique ability to put your hand into the heart of darkness and that is a very strong point in your work so you know so people who know me from you know the rocky horror show or jesus christ superstar or you know aspects of love are only seeing one part of my quite dense and long cv of other things Mm. superstar was filmed wasn't it Superstar was filmed at Pinewood Studios on the James Bond, on the, in the James Bond studio set. Not on the James Bond set, we put our own set up, obviously. Um, it was thrilling to do. 
and we filmed the stage show but we it wasn't filmed on the stage it was built for a sound studio so it was we created a a, a city a world in which it happened and um of course it, it won the international emmy award and and i was in new york for the for the emmy award and it was one of the great nights of my life of course to go up and receive an emmy and um, all of the stuff you see on TV about being ushered into a back room where a thousand photographers take photos of you, and it, it, it's all true, and it all happens. And um, <laughs> I walked out of the um, out of the Emmys with with it in my hand, the Emmy Award, and with my friend Arthur. And we walked through Times Square with the Emmy and we went to the Rockefeller Centre because it had always been my dream to go to the Rainbow Room, which was Judy Garland's mm. hangout. The Rainbow Room at the top of the Rockefeller Centre and we went up in the elevator with me holding the Emmy. And of course the elevator guy said, oh my God, that's an Emmy. I, uh, can I touch it? You know. <laughs> and everyone in the streets, oh my God, that's an Emmy, because they know those things yeah, in yeah. America. You know, yeah. they just they just do in New York anyway. Yeah. So up we went in the elevator and put the Emmy on the table and in true Judy Garland, Mickey Rooney fashion, we drank Bellinis till dawn with the Emmy on the table and with people coming past and saying, Oh my God, that's an Emmy. Can I touch that? And um, and we watched the sun come up over New York, 380 degrees around those windows, and it was the most... And it was just, just the two of us. I mean, we weren't out at parties or any of those sorts of things, but it was an Emmy Award, and it was for that filmed version of the stage play that had really come from Andrew and the Holbein painting. Mm. That was the lineage of it. And, of course, it was as much because of Andrew Lloyd Webber as it was because of me. Well, to another Christ figure in Whistle Down the Wind. Yes. Which is another Lloyd Webber musical, which premiered in Washington in 1996, directed by the great Hal Prince, prior to a West End premiere, which you took over. Um, The Broadway opening was subsequently cancelled because of a lack of success in the US. Do, do you find that audiences vastly different in what they'll respond to? With cultural differences, do they impinge on the success of a show? Oh, I mean, the big mistake with Whistle Down the Wind was that it was a black and white English film about three little kids and that they find the criminal who's on the run, who's hiding in the barn, and the little girl thinks it's Jesus. Is that a film that you watch many times in your well, childhood? Well, I... No, no, it's no. Your but but the, my point is, it mm. was British. Yes. Ah, right. It was owned by the British. It was loved by the British, and generations had grown up watching it. Then Andrew took it to the great Jim Steinman, who was Meatloaf's writer, who wrote A Total Eclipse of the Heart, who lives in Trump Tower, who you know, I mean, he's a New York boy and asked him to write the story and somehow they moved it all to America. So I think that was crime number one against British culture because Jim bought, um, brought a very um, motorbike um, hip 
uh, American aesthetic to it. And, you know, the, the girl's boyfriend rides a, you know, a, a great big motorbike and it, it, it kind of changed this sweet little black and white movie of these little kids on a farm in the moors who find a Christ figure. And I don't think the British ever forgave Andrew for that, for taking such a British piece and Americanizing it. So that was problem number one. Hal Prince directed it, and Hal Prince is, of course, the Prince of Broadway and, and again, a god. Um, it had failed. Andrew was unforgiving and upset. Andrew doesn't like failure. Um, and I don't mean that in a... I'm not being... Um, facetious in saying that. I mean, I think he has a real genuine terror of failure. Um, he works very, very hard, and I have worked at his side and watched how hard he works on that note being placed next to that note, bringing in that chord again, bringing back that theme in a major key, in a minor key. I mean, he constructs like a master. And people who dismiss Andrew as, you know, oh, it's elevator music, you know, I really want to slap their faces mm. because mm. I've seen the way he works. And he is a genius of our times. So it having failed, he did um, a workshop of it. He, he first of all did a workshop of it at Sidmonton, which is his house um, in England, his country house. And Martin Sheen came over and played... Um, one of the characters in the piece and so I got to meet Martin Sheen and work with him and uh, we put it on in there in this little theatre and it was a big success big big success and then he gave it to Howe Prince and it went to Broadway so once that failed he came back to this little production that we'd done in Sidmonton and it's great success and said, would I do it on the West End? And I did, with a terrific designer called Peter Davison. And we tried to emphasise that American thing. We actually set it on a freeway. Uh, there was a big concrete freeway, because we, we went to Louisiana. We were sent to Louisiana to research what the place is like. And Louisiana is beautiful green fields with enormous freeways on great big concrete pylons. And so we created the pylons and the great freeway. And it lifted up off the stage and underneath was the barn where the man stayed. stayed. So it was a fabulous set. Mm -hmm. But it depended on enormous hydraulics that lifted it into the air and then brought it back down again. And um, we opened it. It ran for three years on the West End. And enjoyed some success, more success than it had in the past. Except it was also the biggest I think probably the biggest physical accident that's ever happened on the West End because in a lunch hour when everyone was at lunch thank God the entire freeway collapsed on the stage the hydraulics gave way and had it fallen on anybody it would have killed them let alone if it had fallen on 50 people mm. and that was a very very dark moment in my career I can tell you and Andrew was out at lunch and I was out at lunch and we came back and there was a pile of rubble on the stage in the West End and people sobbing and people in crisis and Andrew came in and was beside himself with anger and 
I mean, it was apocalyptic and we had to cancel the opening night and engineers had to be brought in. So, I mean, these are just part, you know, normal parts of my life and career. <laughs> <laughs> What's musical theatre like in China? Because ah, well, you had 12 months there, didn't you? I spent 12 months in China. Um, it's a very interesting story because uh, a Mr. Wu, who worked for the highest echelon of the communist Chinese government, uh, had been told to produce a great Western-Chinese musical because China very much wants to show the rest of the world that they can do everything that the rest of the world can do. Mm. And so it wasn't... It, it had to have a, a story like they'd seen on the West End or on Broadway, but it had to be a Chinese story. It had to be in Mandarin. It had to involve acrobatics. It had to be influenced by Cirque du Soleil. So that's some brief. Huge. So I write the story and they must, I think that the Chinese must have Googled people who'd done musicals on the West End and just probably started at the top of the list and worked their way down, probably started ringing Hal Prince and then came down the line and rang me and then rang Peter Davison who designed things for me and a choreographer in New York. I mean, honestly, I think they literally Googled us because we were suddenly invited from all over the world to create this thing and we didn't know each other as this white group of musical exponents from around the world to work with the Chinese to create this. Yes, it was a year of my life. Yes, it went on. It was fabulously successful. I think it toured 44 countries. What was it called? It, its English translation name was Spiral, but it was a more interesting word. It was more like the, the inside of the nautilus shell that spirals forever. But again, in common, I mean, I spent six months with a composer, a wonderful Chinese composer who wrote um, pop songs. And he'd never seen a musical because he'd never been out of the country. And I brought out a, a wonderful English musical director, Mike Dixon, who I'd worked with with Andrew Lloyd Webber, and he came out to help us compose. And we were working through a translator. We spent six months with this wonderful Chinese man developing the score. And I came back to Australia for the weekend. And when I got back to China, the producer said, I think you should sit down. And I said, why should I sit down? He said, oh, a problem. And I said, what's the problem? And he said, oh, well, composer has been arrested for pro-Tibetan sympathies. <laughs> He has been raided on Friday. His wife does not know where he is. Um, I apologise for the terrible Chinese accent. Um, he had been taken away on the Friday. All his tapes, all his digital equipment taken. No notification to his wife of where he was being held. And, of course, I said, well, don't be ridiculous. We'll go and find him. You know, he must be in a jail somewhere. I mean, don't be ridiculous. We've... I mean, he's got the whole score. We can't do the show. He's got the score. We're starting in a few weeks. Don't be ridiculous. We're going to find this man. I'm going to the Australian Embassy. Well, he was never found. And he has never been found to this day. I believe he was killed. Yeah. And 
they said they had found something in one of the pop songs that he released that something about Tibet or something. I don't know what it was because, of course, I couldn't speak the language. But he was never found or heard of again. And I said, what are we going to do? I mean, apart from the fact that a person's life is in the balance somewhere and we know nothing about it and that's offensive to every moral fibre in my body. Um, Secondly, we have no score and we're starting in three weeks. And they said, oh, no problem. We get two people from the Chinese army and they are army composers. They will come in and they will compose the music. And a man and a woman in uniform turned up and they sat at the back of the rehearsal room and I stood up in front of a hundred performers and I hummed and sang the score, working through translators, plotting the story through the forest and it was a myth and people abseiled down Cirque du Soleil style from the ceiling and amazing feats happened, you know, amazing theatrical Chinese... Um, acrobats, singers, an amazing set. And um, they composed to what they saw as if they were watching a film. a film, And they just composed as they watched it. So it was the wrong way round. Again, it was a very, very tricky experience. I bet you couldn't wait to get out. I couldn't wait to get out, but the worst thing was they built a theatre for this to happen in and they wanted to show off the theatre. The theatre had a big donut spiral revolve in it, 30 metres across, which spiralled down 30 metres into the floor, which meant that 30 metres below you could load sets on, parades, armies, dancers, whatever you wanted. And as it corkscrewed up, they would come up with it. And then whole sets and whole groups of people could spiral down and be offloaded in the basement. So we were told to use all this equipment to show off this marvellous technology, which we did with my English designer. And I kept saying in the rehearsal room, where's this, where is the, where's, where's the, the corkscrew revolve? Ah, oh, it's in factory being built. Oh, good. Um, I'm counting in the room saying 80 seconds for this thing to come up from the ground and then on this piece of music you arrive and we're all walking on the spot as if we're walking around a spiral and I'm I said is somebody using a stopwatch to time all of this oh yes 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 it's being timed it's being programmed into the computer that drives the corkscrew revolve oh good I said that's fantastic so it's all going to arrive in the theater yes going to arrive in the theater So I I get to the theatre for the tech. Brand new theatre, $5 million theatre, which is a lot of money in China. And in the middle of the stage, there is a 30 metre hole, 30 metres wide, and no yellow safety tape around it. And I say, where is the corkscrew revolve? And the producer said, ah not coming i said what do you mean it's not coming it's in the it's in the factory you told me and you you've been you've been programming it with the computer to the second counts Mm, not built not coming 
And I turned and looked, and the English designer, Peter Davison, was fetal in the stalls in a chair, rocking his body backwards <laughs> and forwards because he had created these brilliant sets that were coming up. The whole thing was designed and directed. How could it not? I mean, how would you get all these things on stage and off stage? And, of course, the answer was, no problem. Army will come in overnight and they will put floorboards down. So we will floorboard, floorboards will go down and cover the stage. I said, but, 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 but everything comes up or goes down. So again, you know, we redirected the entire thing in three weeks of tech and there was no corkscrew revolve and everything had to be brought on with remote control trucks and we adapted, but it was tough. Hi ho, the glamorous life. Hi ho, the glamorous life. <laughs> Among your many awards, you've got a silver griffin. Tell me about that. <laughs> well, I did a production at a place in England, in London, called Gray's Inn, which is the centre of um, the legal profession and has been for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, and Geoffrey Robertson wrote a book, the, the famous Geoffrey Robertson Australian um, brilliant, brilliant mind, brilliant man, and he wrote a book about um, Charles I being beheaded, the first king to ever be killed by the people, by trial. And David Williamson turned it into a play with the same name called The Tyrannicide Brief. And what happened was Cromwell employed a young lawyer to find a way to behead a king. A king was ruling by the divine right of God mm. and could not be tried by his inferiors. So this young man, this is, the, this is true historically, found a loophole in the law called the tyrannicide tyrant, the tyrannicide brief, and used this in a trial to bring Charles down and he was beheaded as a tyrant. Uh, this made this was this was legal revolution. This was one of the biggest things that's ever happened in history in the legal profession. He was subsequently not thanked for that, and he was subsequently betrayed. And of course, Cromwell was overthrown, and the monarchy was restored, but not before Charles had been executed. So it was very famous, and it was the five hundredth anniversary of Grey's Inn and they decided to do this play and they asked me to direct it so I flew over and I was put up in Grey's Inn it, again a 500 year old wow. chambers with private apartments and still being used today as private chambers of the, the very important and of course I walked into this rehearsal that was going on in this grand hall with this great big cathedral roof. And it was the very hall where Shakespeare debuted the Comedy of Errors. And I was walking on the floorboards of the very hall where Shakespeare had walked. I mean, it was wow. amazing. And of course, these gentlemen were on stage, the worthies, and it was John and Bill and Harry and so I'd say 
Bill, Bill, you know, what are you doing? You've got to get centre by that line. You've got to get centre. You've got to move faster. To get... and, what, and what do you mean, John, by there's a full stop in that sentence? You're not observing the punctuation, you know. Well, of course, later I find out that Bill is Lord William of Asquith of something or other and something <laughs> or other. And, you know, John is Sir John, Lord John. These were, these were the worthies in Shakespeare's play. I mean, they were the educated, highest attorneys and lawyers and legal minds in the land, and they were in the play with stars like Tim Pickett Smith, British stars of the theatre, John Sessions. So we had this mixture of stars and real lawyers. And we put the play on, and uh, David Williamson flew over, and um, it it was a remarkable experience. And on the opening night, when we took our bows, the head of Gray's Inn came on stage with a box. And they only have 200 and something fellows of Gray's Inn. And a fellowship is the greatest title that can be awarded to any non-legal person by the legal profession. So it might go to someone who's fighting AIDS in Africa. Mm. It might go to a great chemist. It might go to a neurosurgeon. It might, you know, they're, they're very particular awards. And he gave me the box and opened it, and there was a statue because the griffin, um, you know, the, the lion's head with the wings, that, 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 that creature is the insignia of Gray's Inn. And he presented it to me on stage and said, we are inviting Gail Edwards to be a fellow of Gray's Inn, which was, you know, I I have to say I've had a few awards in my life and it was the most moving award because it had come from a non-theatre place, but they wanted to express their thanks, you know. And Bill and John and Harry, who were all lords of the realm, were all on stage in their in their gear hugging me you know like it was the most surreal experience and of course a wonderful one. Oh my god you've got a griffin i have a as griffin. well as an emmy i have an emmy and a griffin <laughs> <laughs> and green room awards and helpman awards and yeah so i'm a very lucky girl mm. there's been a few opening nights in your career mm-hmm do you have an opening night ritual? Are you superstitious in the theatre? Um, I hate and loathe opening nights. Right. Um, I remember going to the opening night of The Lion King on Broadway and the famous woman director, Julie, Julie Taymor, was standing in the middle of the red carpet outside the theatre in an evening gown and she was personally welcoming the guests, who included, you know, members of Congress, you know, TV celebrities, who she wouldn't necessarily have known. But she stood there and put her hand out and welcomed all these people. And I stood there watching her and I thought, my God, Julie, I admire you so much. Because she had the chutzpah to stand out the front. I, on the other hand, I am the person who hides behind the pot plant. I don't want to be seen on opening nights. I usually feel sick and I can't wait to get home and get into my pyjamas and watch TV because 
that's all I look forward to because it's it's usually you know putting on a play is a big effort it's like giving birth mm. you know it, it's and sometimes you're very sure of them and you think they're terrific and sometimes you're unsure that they'll work you think well we've done our best but I don't know how this will be received by the public if you're in charge of millions of dollars as I have been on Broadway for Andrew Lloyd Webber millions 12 million dollars there's a lot riding on that opening night. It's not just your reputation, it's a lot of other people's reputation. It's a lot of money. So I'm not good at opening nights. I'm not good at doing the schmooze in the foyer. Um, I'm not good at any of that. I'm good at getting there, but the actual night itself, I, I usually find very painful. And getting that happy smile on my face, like everything's fine, <laughs> is... Um, is very difficult. But an opening night for a director is also a kind of death because you part from the piece on the opening night and they, that is the actors, go on. It's the moment when you, who has been the centre of the wheel, all spokes connected to you every day, and now suddenly it's not about you at all. It's about them and it. It takes on a life of itself of its own and I might be on a plane the next day leaving the country so there would always be a, a sort of grief attached to an opening night for me an ending whereas for you know if you're in a long run of a musical it's a beginning for the actors mm. they're, they're off you know they're going to be together for the next six months so as a director um I have to say I don't give myself big points for opening nights and the next day I'm usually quite depressed. I'm kind I kind of miss it and I miss everybody and I have to wean myself off it because the process of directing has called upon all my resources and and all of me and I've in retrospect I perhaps should have been more judicious in keeping parts of me separate from it because I'd get to the opening night and suddenly go oh all oh, right, I'm going home now by myself with the dog. But I would love going home and getting into my dressing gown and my pajamas. <laughs> Do you have any regrets? Ooh, lists of them. Yeah, lists of them. I mean, should I ever have returned to Australia when I was on a roll in England? You know, I'd been there for seventeen years. I was working constantly um, I sort of capriciously made this decision that I longed for home I think I was I was in my mid 40s I wanted to come home I wanted to come back to Australia now I regret that I think I probably should have stayed there because you know the career was I mean it was embracing there was there were offers after offers after offers in, in all sorts of different genres. You know, I worked at the Coliseum, at the, at the opera. I may have been able to work at Covent Garden. How much would I have loved to have worked at Glyndebourne? You know, there, there were many things I would have loved to have done. But I, I really felt um, called back here in the year 2000. And, um, and while I've had a home that we're sitting in at the moment... And I hadn't had a home most of my life. I'd been itinerant. Mm. I have a home that I love and a dog that I love. And we're surrounded by lots of art that I love. And we can hear my chimes in the garden because I have a big garden um, that looks a bit like Jurassic Park. 
And um, while I love these things, I, I always believed I would die directing, that I would be directing one day my head would just hit the, <laughs> the, the table, you know, and I'd just be gone. That'd be it, hopefully in tech week, so it didn't matter. Um, so the fact that it's kind of, there's been uh, um, retirement sort of foist upon me when I feel as as excited and passionate and childlike about the theatre as I ever did, that that's been a hard adjustment, you know, and I... I always thought I would be like the English directors, you know, like Sir Peter Hall or Trevor Nunn. They never stop working. No, no one says they're too old and they're in their 80s. Mm. Um, so it's, that's, that's been hard, and a hard adjustment over the last decade especially. People see careers like mine from a distance mm. and they think, A, they're glamorous, and B, she must be terribly ambitious to have gotten to the top of that. Gosh, you know, how did she get that? They have no idea that it's um, a lot of it is is bungling about because you love something. Saying you'd like me to come over there and do that, okay. You'd like me to get on a plane and do that, okay. I'll do it. It's not planned, and it's it's often um, anything but glamorous. Although I've had you know many glamorous moments, but but um, it's it's not as people perceive it. And I think if we're going to talk, we, you know, I mean, it's it's important, I think, with your podcasts to really reveal the truth about this wonderful, wonderful thing called the performing arts, which I am still in love with, and which I think is so important to our culture and mustn't die because of TV and films and DVDs because it's a, it's a living organism, it's a living thing. And new generations must come up and they must keep it alive and keep the standards high so that people will leave their homes and their you know, DVD players and will, will go out and have that unique experience which the theatre is. Great. You enjoy that chat? Loved it. I've loved it too. Thanks, Gail. Hope it all works out okay. (laughs) It is such a privilege to record episodes like these. History, passion, insight and joy. Gail Edwards is one of the greats and I very much appreciate her generosity of time and spirit in recording these episodes. There is always something new for us to learn, so if you enjoyed this conversation, you're bound to enjoy many more from the Stages Archive. You'll find conversations with uh, Reg Livermore and Chloe Dallimore, just to name a few, and all with fascinating tales across all stages. Find the podcast on Spotify, Wooshka, or in iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe so that you may receive each new episode as it drops. You wouldn't want to have missed out on Gail Edwards, would you? Take the time to rate and review the podcast and share it with your friends. As always, I'm Peter Ayers and you've been listening to another exciting episode from the award-winning podcast, Stages. 